0: Section One of Sand Doom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sand Doom by Murray Leinster. Section One. Boardman knew there was something wrong when the throbbing, acutely uncomfortable vibration of rocket blast shook the ship. Rockets were strictly emergency devices these days, so when they were used there was obviously an emergency." He sat still. He had been reading in the passenger lounge of the warlock, a very small lounge indeed, but as a senior colonial survey officer he was well traveled enough to know when things did not go right. He looked up from the bookscreen, waiting. Nobody came to explain the eccentricity of a spaceship using rockets. It would have been immediate on a regular liner, but the warlock was practically a tramp. This trip it carried just two passengers. Passenger service was not yet authorized to the planet ahead and would not be until Boardman had made the report he was on his way to compile. At the moment, though, the rockets blasted and stopped and blasted again. There was something definitely wrong. The warlock's other passenger came out of her cabin. She looked surprised. She was Aletha Redfeather, an unusually lovely Amerind. It was extraordinary that a girl could be so self-sufficient on a tedious space voyage, and Boardman approved of her. She was making the journey to Zosa too as a representative of the Amerind Historical Society, but she brought her own book-reels and some elaborate fancy-work, which, woman-fashion, she used to occupy her hands. She hadn't been at all a nuisance. Now she tilted her head on one side as she looked inquiringly at Boardman. I'm wondering, too, he told her, just as an especially sustained and violent shuddering of rocket impulsion made his chair-legs thudder on the floor. There was a long period of stillness. Then another violent but much shorter blast. A shorter one still. Presently there was a half second blast which must have been from a single rocket tube because of the mild shaking it produced. After that there was nothing at all. Boardman frowned to himself. He'd been anticipating groundfall within a matter of hours, certainly. He'd just gone through his spec book carefully and refamiliarized himself with the work he was to survey on Zosa 2 it was a perfectly commonplace minerals planet development, and he'd expected to clear it FE, fully established, and probably TP and MQ ratings as well, indicating that tourists were permitted and no quarantine was necessary. Considering the aridity of the planet, no bacteriological dangers could be expected to exist, and if tourists wanted to view its monstrous deserts and inferno like wind sculptures, why, they should be welcome but the ship had used rocket-drive in the planet's near vicinity. Emergency. Which was ridiculous. This was a perfectly routine sort of voyage. Its purpose was the delivery of heavy equipment, specifically a smelter, and a senior colonial survey officer to report the completion of primary development. Aletha waited, as if for more rocket blasts. Presently she smiled at some thought that had occurred to her. "'If this were an adventure-tape,' she said humorously, "'the loudspeaker would now announce that the ship had established itself in an orbit around the strange, uncharted planet first sighted three days ago, and that volunteers were wanted for a boat-landing.' Boardman demanded impatiently, "'Do you bother with adventure-tapes? They're nonsense! A pure waste of time!' Aletha smiled again. My ancestors, she told him, used to hold tribal dances and make medicine and boast about how many scalps they'd taken and how they did it. It was satisfying, and educational for the young. Adolescents became familiar with the idea of what we nowadays call adventure. They were partly ready for it when it came. I suspect your ancestors used to tell each other stories about hunting mammoths and such. So I think it would be fun to hear that we were in orbit and that a boat landing was in order." Boardman grunted. There were no longer adventures. The universe was settled, civilized. Of course there were still frontier planets, Zosa too was one, but pioneers had only hardships, not adventures. The ship-phone speaker clicked. It said curtly, "'Notice. We have arrived at Zosa 2 and have established an orbit about it. A landing will be made by boat.' Boardman's mouth dropped open. "'What the devil's this?' he demanded. "'Adventure, maybe,' said Aletha. Her eyes crinkled very pleasantly when she smiled. She wore the modern Amarin dress a sign of pride in the ancestry which now implied such diverse occupations as interstellar steel construction and animal husbandry and lano-planet colonization. If it were an adventure, as the only girl on this ship, I'd have to be in the landing party, lest the tedium of orbital waiting make the—her smile widened to a grin—the pent-up restlessness of troublemakers in the crew. The ship-phone clicked again. Mr. Boardman. Miss Redfeather, according to advices from the ground, the ship may have to stay in orbit for a considerable time. You will, accordingly, be landed by boat. Will you make yourselves ready, please, and report to the boat blister?" The voice paused and added, "'Hand luggage only, please.' Aletha's eyes brightened. Boardman felt the shocked incredulity of a man accustomed to routine when routine was impossibly broken. Of course, survey ships made boat landings from orbit, and colony ships let down robot hulls by rocket when there was as yet no landing-grid for the handling of a ship. But never before in his experience had an ordinary freighter, on a routine voyage to a colony ready for its final degree of completion survey, ever landed anybody by boat. "'This is ridiculous,' said Boardman, fuming. "'Maybe it's adventure.' said Aletha. I'll pack." She disappeared into her cabin. Boardman hesitated. Then he went into his own. The colony on Sosa II had been established two years ago. Minimum comfort conditions had been realized within six months. A temporary landing-grid for light supply-ships was up within a year. It had permitted stockpiling, and it had been taken down to be rebuilt as a permanent grid with every possible contingency provided for. The eight months since the last ship-landing was more than enough for the building of the gigantic, spidery, half-mile-high structure which would handle this planet's interstellar commerce. There was no excuse for an emergency. A boat-landing was nonsensical. But he surveyed the contents of his cabin, Most of the cargo of the warlock was smelter equipment, which was to complete the outfitting of the colony. It was to be unloaded first. By the time the ship's holds were wholly empty, the smelter would be operating. The ship would wait for a full cargo of pig-metal. Boardman had expected to live in his cabin while he worked on the survey he'd come to make, and to leave again with the ship. Now he was to go aground by boat. He fretted. The only emergency equipment he could possibly need was a heat-suit. He doubted the urgency of that. But he packed some clothing for indoors, and then defiantly included his spec-book and the volumes of definitive data to which the specifications for structures and colonial establishments always referred. He get to work on his report immediately he landed. He went out of the passenger's lounge to the boat-blister. An engineer's legs projected from the boat-port. The engineer withdrew, with a strip of tape from the boat's computer. He compared it dourly with a similar strip from the ship's figure-box. Boardman consciously acted according to the best traditions of passengers. What's the trouble? he asked. We can't land, said the engineer shortly. He went away, according to the tradition by which ships' crews are always scornful of passengers. Boardman scowled. Then Aletha came, carrying a not-too-heavy bag. Boardman put it in the boat, disapproving of the crampedness of the craft. But this wasn't a lifeboat. It was a landing boat. A lifeboat had lauder drive and could travel light-years, but in the place of rockets and rocket fuel it had air purifiers and water recovery units and food stores. It couldn't land without a landing grid aground but it could get to a civilized planet. This landing-boat could land without a grid, but its air wouldn't last long." "'Whatever's the matter,' said Boardman darkly, "'it's incompetent somewhere.' But he couldn't figure it out. This was a cargo-ship. Cargo-ships neither took off nor landed under their own power. It was too costly a fuel they would have to carry. So landing-grids used local power which did not have to be lifted, to heave ships out into space and again use local power to draw them to ground again. Therefore ships carried fuel only for actual space flight, which was economy. Yet landing grids had no moving parts. And while they did have to be monstrous structures, they actually drew power from planetary ionospheres. So with no moving parts to break down, and no possibility of the failure of a power source, Landing grids couldn't fail. So there couldn't be an emergency to make a ship ride orbit around a planet which had a landing grid. The engineer came back. He carried a mail-sack full of letter-reels. He waved his hand. Aletha crawled into the landing-boat port. Boardman followed. Four people, with a little crowding, could have gotten into the little ship. Three pretty well filled it. The engineer followed them and sealed the port. "'Sealed off,' he said into the microphone before him. The exterior pressure-needle moved halfway across the dial. The interior pressure-needle stayed steady. "'All tight,' said the engineer. The exterior pressure-needle flicked to zero. There were clanking sounds. The long halves of the boat-blister stirred and opened, and abruptly the landing-boat was in an elongated cup in the hull-plating and above them there were many, many stars. The enormous disk of a nearby planet floated into view around the hull. It was monstrous and blindingly bright. It was of a tawny color, with great irregular areas of yellow and patches of bluishness. But most of it was the color of sand. And all its color varied in shade, some places were lighter and some darker and over at one edge there was a blinding whiteness which could not be anything but an ice-cap. But Boardman knew that there was no ocean or sea or lake on all this whole planet, and the ice-cap was more nearly hoarfrost than such mile-deep glaciation as would be found at the poles of a maximum comfort world. "'Strap in,' said the engineer over his shoulder. "'No gravity coming, and then rocket push. Settle your heads." Boardman irritably strapped himself in. He saw Aletha busy at some task, her eyes shining. Without warning there came a sensation of acute discomfort. It was the landing-boat detaching itself from the ship and the diminishment of the ship's closely confined artificial gravity field. That field suddenly dropped to nothingness and Boardman had the momentary sickish dizziness that flicked-off gravity always produces. At the same time his heart pounded unbearably in the instinctive, racial-memory reaction to the feel of falling. Then roarings. He was thrust savagely back against his seat. His tongue tried to slide back into his throat. There was an enormous oppression on his chest. He found himself thinking panicky profanity. Simultaneously the vision ports went black, because they were out of the shadow of the ship. The landing-boat turned, but there was no sensation of centrifugal force, and they were in a vast obscurity with merely a dim phantom of the planetary surface to be seen. But behind them a white-blue sun shone terribly. Its light was warm, hot, even though it came through the polarized shielding ports. Did. Did you say, panted Aletha happily, breathless because of the acceleration, that there weren't any adventures?" Boardman did not answer, but he did not count his comfort as an adventure. The engineer did not look out the ports at all. He watched the screen before him. There was a vertical line across the side of the lighted disk. A blip moved downward across it, showing their height in thousands of miles. After a long time the blip reached the bottom, and the vertical line became double and another blip began to descend. It measured the height in hundreds of miles. A bright spot, a square, appeared at one side of the screen. A voice muttered metallically and suddenly seemed to shout and then muttered again. Boardman looked out one of the black ports and saw the planet as if through smoked glass. It was a ghostly reddish thing which filled half the cosmos. It had mottlings. Its edge was curved. That would be the horizon. The engineer moved controls, and the white square moved. It went across the screen. He moved more controls. It came back to the center. The height in hundreds blip was at the bottom now, and the vertical line tripled, and a tens of miles height blip crawled downward. There were sudden, monstrous plungings of the landing-boat. It had hit the outermost fringes of atmosphere. The engineer said words it was not appropriate for Aletha to hear. The plungings became more violent. Boardman held on, to keep from being shaken to pieces despite the straps, and stared at the murky surface of the planet. It seemed to be fleeing from them, and they to be trying to overtake it. Gradually, very gradually, Its flight appeared to slow. They were down to twenty miles, then. Quite abruptly the landing-boat steadied. The square spot bobbed about in the center of the astrogation screen. The engineer worked controls to steady it. The ports cleared a little. Boardman could see the ground below more distinctly. There were patches of every tint that mineral coloring could produce. There were vast stretches of tawny sand a little while more, and he could see the shadows of mountains. He made out mountain flanks which should have had valleys between them and other mountain flanks beyond, but they had tawny flatnesses between instead. These, he knew, would be the sand plateaus, which had been observed on this planet and which had only a still disputed explanation. But he could see areas of glistening yellow and dirty white and splashes of pink and streaks of ultramarine and gray and violet, and the incredible red of iron oxide covering square miles—too much to be believed. The landing-boat's rockets cut off. It coasted. Presently the horizon tilted, and all the dazzling ground below turned sedately beneath them. There came staccato instructions from a voice-speaker, which the engineer obeyed. The landing-boat swung low below the tips of giant mauve mountains with a sand plateau beyond them, and its nose went up. It stalled. Then the rockets roared again, and now, with air about them and after a momentary pause, they were horribly loud, and the boat settled down and down upon its own tail of fire. There was a completely blinding mass of dust and rocket fumes, which cut off all sight of everything else. Then there was a crunching crash, and the engineer swore peevishly to himself. He cut the rockets again. Finally. Boardman found himself staring straight up, still strapped in his chair. The boat had settled on its own tail fins, and his feet were higher than his head, and he felt ridiculous. He saw the engineer at work unstrapping himself. He duplicated the action but it was absurdly difficult to get out of the chair. Aletha managed more gracefully. She didn't need help. "'Wait,' said the engineer ungraciously, till somebody comes." So they waited, using what had been chairbacks for seats. The engineer moved a control and the windows cleared further. They saw the surface of Zosa, too. There was no living thing in sight the ground itself was pebbles and small rocks and minor boulders, all apparently tumbled from the starkly magnificent mountains to one side. There were monstrous, many-colored cliffs and mesas, every one eaten at in the unmistakable fashion of wind erosion. Through a notch in the mountain wall before them a strange, fan-shaped, frozen formation appeared. If such a thing had been credible, Boardman would have said that it was a flow of sand simulating a waterfall. And everywhere there was blinding brightness and the look and feel of blistering sunshine. But there was not one single leaf or twig or blade of grass. This was pure desert. This was Zosa too. Aletha regarded it with bright eyes. "'Beautiful!' she said happily. "'Isn't it?' Personally, said Boardman, I never saw a place that looked less homelike or attractive. Aletha laughed. My eyes see it differently. Which was true. It was accepted nowadays that humankind might be one species, but was many races, and each saw the cosmos in its own fashion. On Calmet III, there was a dense, predominantly Asiatic population, which terraced its mountainsides for agriculture and deftly mingled modern techniques with social customs, not to be found on, say, Demeter I, where there were many red-tiled stucco towns and very many olive groves. In the Lano planets of the Equus cluster, Amerinds, Alethas kin zestfully rode over plains dotted with the descendants of buffalo and antelope and cattle brought from ancient earth. On the oases of Rustam IV there were date-palms and riding camels and much argument about what should be substituted for the direction of Mecca at the times for prayer. While wheat-fields spanned provinces on Canna I, and highly civilized emigrants from the continent of Africa on Earth stored jungle gums and lustrous gems in the warehouses of their spaceport city of Timbuk. So it was natural for Aletha to look at this wind-carved wilderness otherwise than as Boardman did. Her racial kindred were the pioneers of the stars these days. Their heritage made them less than appreciative of urban life. Their inborn indifference to heights made them the steel construction men of the cosmos, and more than two thirds of the landing grids in the whole galaxy had their coo feather symbols on the key posts. But the planet government on Algonka V was housed in a three thousand foot white stone teepee, and the best horses known to men were raised by ranchers with bronze skins and high cheekbones on the Lano planet Chagan. Now here, in the warlock's landing-boat, the engineer snorted. A vehicle came around a cliff wall, clanking its way on those eccentric cater-wheels that new-founded colonies find so useful. The vehicle glittered. It crawled over tumbled boulders and flowed over fallen scree. It came briskly toward them. The engineer snorted again. "'That's my cousin Ralph!' said Elitha in pleased surprise. Boardman blinked and looked again. He did not quite believe his eyes. But they told the truth. The figure controlling the ground-car was Indian, Amerind, wearing a breech-cloth and thick-soled sandals and 3 streamlined feathers in a band about his head. Moreover, he did not ride in a seat. He sat astride a semi-cylindrical part of the ground-car, over which a gaily-colored blanket had been thrown. The ship's engineer rumbled disgustedly. But then Boardman saw how sane this method of riding was, here. The ground vehicle lurched and swayed and rolled and pitched and tossed as it came over the uneven ground. To sit in anything like a chair would have been foolish. A backrest would throw one forward in a frontward lurch and give no support in case of a backward one. A sidewise tilt would tend to throw one out. Riding a ground car as if in a saddle was sense. But Boardman was not so sure about the costume. The engineer opened the port and spoke hostily out of it. "'Do you know there's a lady in this thing?' The young Indian grinned. He waved his hand to Aletha, who pressed her nose against a viewport. And just then Boardman did understand the costume or lack of it. Air came in the open exit port. It was hot and desiccated. It was furnace-like. How, Letha? called the rider on the cater-wheel steed. Either dress for the climate, or put on a heat-suit before you come out of there. Aletha chuckled. Boardman heard a stirring behind him. Then Aletha climbed to the exit port and swung out. Boardman heard a dour muttering from the engineer. Then he saw her greeting her cousin. She had slipped out of the conventionalized amaranth outfit to which Boardman was accustomed. Now she was clad as Anglo-Saxon girls dressed for beaches on the cool-temperature planets. For a moment Boardman thought of sunstroke, with his own eyes dazzled by the still partly-filtered sunlight. But Aletha's amaranth coloring was perfectly suited to sunshine even of this intensity. Wind blowing upon her body would cool her skin. Her thick, straight black hair was at least as good protection against sunstroke as a heat helmet. She might feel hot, but she would be perfectly safe. She wouldn't even sunburn. But he, boardman.... He grimly stripped to underwear and put on the heat suit from his bag. He filled its canteens from the boat's water tank. He turned on the tiny, battery-powered motors. The suit ballooned out. It was intended for short periods of intolerable heat. The motors kept it inflated, away from his skin, and cooled its interior by the evaporation of sweat plus water from its canteen tanks. It was a miniature air-conditioning system for one man, and it should enable him to endure temperatures otherwise lethal to someone with his skin and coloring. But it would use a lot of water. He climbed to the exit port and went clumsily down the exterior ladder to the tail-fin. He adjusted his goggles. He went over to the chattering young Indians, young man and girl. He held out his gloved hand. I'm Boardman, he said painfully, here to make a degree of completion survey. What's wrong that we had to land by boat? Aletha's cousin shook hands cordially. I'm Ralph Redfeather he said, introducing himself. Project Engineer. About everything's wrong. Our landing grid's gone. We couldn't contact your ship in time to warn it off. It was in our gravity field before it answered, and its Lawler Drive couldn't take it away. Not working because of the field. Our power, of course, went with the landing grid. The ship you came in can't get back. And we can't send a distress message anywhere." and our best estimate is that the colony will be wiped out, thirst and starvation, in six months. I'm sorry you and Aletha have to be included." Then he turned to Aletha and said amiably, "'How's Mike Thundercloud? And Sally Whitehorse? And the gang in general, Elitha?" End of Section 1